Okay, friends, I've got some quick expo news for you before we get to this week's episode. World Dairy Expo is currently searching for its next communications manager and therefore host of The Dairy Show. So if you have ever dreamed of working for World Dairy Expo of hosting this podcast, now is your chance. Go visit WorldDairyExpo.com, look for the careers tab and review the position description posted there. I can confidently say through years of experience that working for World Dairy Expo is an incredible opportunity and the team that puts it together is truly, truly world class. But until the search is complete, I will continue bringing you episodes on the second and fourth Tuesday of every month here on The Dairy Show. So without further ado, this week's episode. From Madison, Wisconsin, World Dairy Expo presents The Dairy Show, the digital meeting place of the global dairy industry, where we sit down to talk cows, cutting edge technology, and the colored shavings. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to The Dairy Show. I am your host, Katie Schmidt, and this week on the podcast, we are joined by Roger McOwen. He is the Professor of Agricultural Law and Taxation at Washburn University School of Law in Topeka, Kansas, as well as at Kansas State. And of course, we are recording this just days after K-State won the Big 12 championship in football, so I feel like we should give them a quick shout out as a land-grant university. So well done, Wildcats. And with that out of the way, welcome to the podcast, Roger. Yeah, good to be with you, Katie. Thank you. All right. Well, we covered your your titles and what your roles are at the law schools. But Roger, can you give us a little bit more background on who you are, how you became a professor in agricultural law and taxation? Oh, you want the whole scoop, huh? Well, I grew up on a farm in northeast Indiana. My family still farms there. And uh, in fact, uh, just recently over thanks over Thanksgiving, I had a chance to get back there and see all my siblings and spend the day at the farm. And that was nice. I had been back there for a number of years. Uh, that's where I'm from and did my undergraduate at Purdue in uh, management a long time ago and uh, then went on to Indiana University Law School down in Bloomington to do my first year of law school and finished out in the state of Iowa, uh, where I also got a graduate degree in ag econ while I was doing my law degree in central Iowa at that time. And, and then moved on to practice in uh, North Platte, Nebraska for a couple of years, then started an ag law program at K-State. Uh, started another one at uh, Iowa State, and then uh, Washburn Law School had been after me for about 20 years and came to me and uh, told me one day, he said, well, uh, to send a professor up, unbeknownst to me, to talk to me, and said, I know you've been putting me off for uh, 20 years, but uh, the new dean said, uh, sent me up here, said, go get him, tell him just to write whatever contract he wants, uh, and the deal also included K-State, so that was a pretty good deal. So. Uh, back in Kansas and uh, traveling all over the place. I were, as we talk, we're early December. I still have nine events to go this year in four different states uh, before I end up on the, let's see, it would be the uh, 22nd of December is when I finish this year. Oh my gosh, which is almost fitting because uh, an event is how Roger and I got connected. I heard him speak at the National Association of Farm Broadcasters Convention in Kansas City um, in mid-November. And it was a phenomenal topic and a phenomenal presentation. So that's why we have Roger here today with us. So Roger, I'm going to have, I was going to jump right in, but I'm going to ask you one like quick question here. 
to kind of set the stage, because as a professor in law, you know, you have students on the first day of class that are going to have to try to understand what it is you're going to walk through with them. What are, you know, one, two, three of the big takeaways that you tell those students on the first day walking into a brand new ag law class? Well, this this may, I I don't know, it, it probably will be something out of the ordinary that you weren't expecting, but I do a couple of things on the first day. One is I put a, a map up uh, for my students of the um, most recent presidential election, you know, the red-blue map. And I tell them, you've been educated in an island. And where you want to go practice, particularly with my law students, if you're going to go into a rural area, uh, you're no longer going to be on your island. And you've got to relate to your clients. And so you've got to understand agriculture. You've got to understand where they're coming from on these issues. And uh, understand that you've been on a <laughs> you've been on a political island for many years as you've been educated. You need to get off that island. And so when they see the red blue map, and even looking at California, California is a sea of red with two blue dots on it: Los Angeles and San Diego, and and that's in San Francisco. That's basically it. And where agriculture is at, it's red. And you you got to start with that. And the second thing I do then is we go through terminology. And I have a sheet of multiple pages of ag terms. And uh, for example, bush hog, what's a bush hog? Uh, What's a chopper? A chopper is not a helicopter. And so you got to understand the language that your clients use uh, and that you're going to work with in order for them, for you to communicate with them on their terms. Because uh, again, you've been educated in these terms but they mean something totally different in agriculture. And then the third thing I do is start getting them to understand their client's business. You know, how does a dairy operate? How does a ranch operate? What are the biz- what are the decisions that a farmer or rancher faces on a daily basis? Then they can start to see, oh, there are legal issues associated with all of these things and they're all unique. So that's how I start out a semester. And I'm sure, you know, in your, in your own background, Katie, you probably never had a professor that started the first day of the semester just like that. I can guarantee that in my four years of college, that never happened. But I, I like it. I think that's a really good way to set the stage for people who aren't familiar with agriculture coming into it to kind of understand, at least on a baseline, what to expect or what to anticipate so they can learn within the right terms or within the right areas. Okay, you mentioned the different operations and um, how dairies, beef, ranches, whatever, all function differently. But the other part of those operations is also how they're legally set up too, right? Like we talk about LLCs, LLPs, all of those options. What are those different farm entity types and how, how do people pick the right one for them? Well, again, there's no one size that fits all uh, on these. And um, because everybody's facts are different, everybody's operation is different, everybody's family structure is different, finances are different. And all of that bears on the structure of the operation, uh, whether I should be a sole proprietorship, whether I should be a partnership or a corporation. If a corporation, what type of corporation? There are so many factors that drive the, the structure question that, you know, I can't, uh, I can't give you a one size fits all answer, but often what drives it with respect to larger farming operations would be federal farm program payment limitation rules. And if we want to maximize our government payments, then our operating entities should not be any type of corporation or any type of entity that limits liability, such as a limited partnership. 
Because once you have that at your uh, operational level, then you're only entitled to one payment limit. But if you're, for example, a general partnership, there's no limitation on the number of payments because the, the, the measurement by FSA then flows through the entity and we count up how many members of the entity that there are and we could ha potentially have a payment limit for each of those members. So while that, this type of calculation may not matter, for larger, for smaller operations that aren't eligible potentially for multiple payment limits, which is tied to production. Uh, they don't have the production level that supports um, a, a large amount of government payments. You know, a sole proprietorship may be fine, a, a limited partnership may be fine, an S corporation or a C corporation may be fine from a government program payment perspective. But once we get bigger, we start generally with a with a general partnership, and then we have sub entities beneath that to carry out our planning. But that that is a driver for a, a lot of the entity structuring that we see in agriculture. What are the types of questions that producers should be asking their lawyer uh, when it comes time to set up those types of entities or decide what entity is right for them? Well, I, I would let me flip it around in terms of the questions um, asking the lawyer. I think the lawyer needs to be making sure that they're getting all of the information about the operation that they need. And so the, the from the farmer's perspective, they need to open up and give a full uh, rundown, a full disclosure of all the assets that they own. Try to put a, a good number in terms of value on those. Uh, how are you structured? What's the land that you own? Make sure the attorney has copies of deeds so that they can actually see the title ownership and how that property is owned. We don't want to assume anything. Uh, and then get a, a basic understanding of what your goals and objectives are, uh, what the farmer's goals and objectives are generally. And uh, that's how I would start. And that's how I do start is gather all that information. I want to see a detailed balance sheet. I want to see a summary of your assets and liabilities. I want, to, I want to know what your general goals are. Who are the family members? Who are the players in this? And then I can sit back and I can kind of analyze that without ever meeting with the farmer or rancher first. Uh, so go through all of that and then kind of have a good idea in my mind of some options that I want to talk to them about when they do come in to visit. Because farmers and ranchers' time is valuable. Uh, the attorney's time is valuable and costly. Uh, to the farmer or rancher. And so I think there's a lot of this that can be done, this background work before the attorney ever sits down with the client. And, and farmers and ranchers need to make sure that they're not shortchanging themselves. I often hear grumbling from farmers and ranchers uh, about attorney's fees. Oh, I don't want to pay the cost to put an estate plan together. Well, you know, you'll spend six to $8,000 for a a spreader tire for a combine or something like that. Um, isn't that, isn't your legacy worth that? And that's what I tell people, you know, put it in perspective. Um, and yeah, it, it will cost some, but most people can get an estate plan done for two to $10,000. It's the larger operations where we're, then we have to get into entity structuring, substructuring, all types of technical drafting where the cost can go up. But when you're talking about saving for example, in, in one situation I had, saving uh, upwards of 12 to $14 million of federal estate tax with a well-drafted plan compared to doing nothing. Yeah, a little bit of cost, uh, even if it's six figures, is worth saving that those types of dollars. No kidding. And I feel like we should talk about estate planning now because you brought it up a little bit here. 
you shared a stat during your presentation, and correct me if I have this wrong, but it was 33% of the country's 3.4 million farmers are over 65, and an additional 1 million are at least 55. Do I have that right? That's exactly right. So if my math is right, which I will tell you and listeners now, math is not my forte, but that means that you know 62% of the farmers are at least 55. Do I have that right? Yeah, it's pretty close to two-thirds. That's right. Yes. So what does that mean in like the estate planning space or like how does that translate into something that it matters for agriculturists and for farmers? Yeah, it, it means a lot because if those people don't do estate planning or don't do appropriate transition planning, then we're going to have an absolute mess. Uh, we will have inefficiently run operations. Agriculture will suffer as a whole because of that, it, because the, the economics is tied to and and estate planning and transition planning is tied into farm economics. And if I do my estate planning, if I do my transition planning, then I'm able to weather much more easily a downturn in the farm economy if that were to occur. If that doesn't occur, and history teaches this, this uh, those that got really hurt in the 1980s and got wiped out during that crisis, while there were some very good um, operations that still didn't make it through the 1980s, if I've managed my debt, if I've structured my operation properly, if I've done all that late work in advance and I'm running as efficiently as I can, I have a much greater chance of surviving any type of downturn. And um, history also shows us that those estates and farming operations that are unplanned and haven't planned for the future have more disruptions. Uh, There may be family fights that tear things apart. You may have in-laws that get involved. You may have passage down to cousins, for example, that now can't agree on how to move forward. We wanna try to address those things in drafting documents such as entity structuring and buy-sell agreements so that we're avoiding those types of disruptions to the farming operation in the future. And what this is telling you, those, that stat, when you've got uh, over 60% and perhaps two-thirds of farming operations that are going to transition uh, by 2030, there's a lot of work to be done. And if that's not done, we could see economic upheaval in farm country and, and some pretty good operations go by the wayside. We just don't want that to happen. What's the, the trick or the, the first step in starting estate planning? Well, I'll I'll cycle back to what I said earlier. I think it's imperative upon the estate planner, the attorneys, the CPAs, the financial planners to gather all the information from the client that they can as much as they can in advance. And I also think that the, the one key to it is what I call the Mayo approach to estate and business planning. Now, if, if for those people that are listening that have had a a medical condition and they've ended up at the Mayo Clinic. You know that the Mayo Clinic does things differently than doctors do that work out of a hospital. Uh, because you know, you go to the hospital and you'll have one treating physician that is a specialist in X, you get another treating physician to deal with another issue that you have that's a specialist in Y, and maybe a third physician, and they don't talk to each other. And one thing that one physician is saying needs to be done conflicts with what another physician is doing. And, you know, by the end of all of this, the one person that has a really good handle on everything is probably the nursing team rather than the doctors. Mayo operates differently. Uh, You may have multiple treating physicians, but they all work together. 
And that's been an emphasis point of mine for years. This is the way I was trained when I started 30 years ago in Nebraska. And that was, no, we're going to pull the CPA in. We're going to pull a financial planner in. We're going to pull the life insurance agent in if there is one. Uh, we're going to pull pull in a farm manager if there is one. And we're going to sit down and, you know, the attorney is the quarterback of the team. But the point is that you have a team and we use a team approach. Is it more costly? Yeah. Is it more beneficial to the client? I think definitely the benefits outweigh the cost, but you get everybody on the same page and you have all these interlocking things together, working in one piece moving forward, rather than trying to you know, grab this issue and then this issue and then this one over here, oh, oh, what I did here now changes this. And no, uh, we wanna have everybody at the table together uh, coming up with a plan that is integrated and works well together moving forward. I, I really think that's the key. As someone who has their finger on the pulse in terms of things that are happening with federal tax law changes, ag law changes, what are some of those topics or items that we should be watching for um, in the last weeks of 22, but also going into 23? Yeah, well, there's um, there's always potential for change in the tax world. I don't think we're going to see a massive amount of that until we get close to the end of 2025, because the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act started in 18. It was passed in December of 17. It starts in 18 and goes through 2025. And a, lo- a lot of the current rules will then expire. And a big one on the estate planning side of thing is that the federal estate tax exemption will come way back down. Uh, it's currently over $12 million per person, and that's scheduled to go to $5 million starting in 2026 with an inflation adjustment. So it'll probably be about $7 million. So by the time we get to 2025, the exemption will probably be up around $15 million. It'll be close to $13 million for next year. And we could basically cut that in half starting in 2026. Now, that's a concern. We have to watch that. And, and I don't think we'll see major legislation uh, now with a divided Congress, I, I think they just kind of slide on with what we've got right now. There are a couple of outside of that sphere of income tax, estate tax. Um, there are a couple of big issues currently before the U.S. Supreme Court that involve agriculture. And those cases are going to be decided next year uh, by June. And uh, one of those has to do with the definition of what a wetland is. It's a case coming out of northern Idaho. That's a big one for agriculture. It's going to be very important to see what the U.S. Supreme Court says on that. And the other one is uh, this currently before the court involves Proposition 12 out of California. And that involves the issue of whether a state can dictate agricultural practices in another state. And so we're going to have to see what the court says on those two issues. Those are big issues that are out there. Then you have the regional issues. Uh, water is huge out west, uh, very big issue. We have uh, numerous uh, issues in various states involving water. Uh, as you move east, you get into the more uh, rural urban land use conflict issues, uh, property rights, uh, zoning issues, uh, fracking, oil drilling, uh, all a whole host of things, pipeline easements. Uh, across property. So there, there's those issues. And then the over, overall economic problems that we have in the country right now, of course, the war in Ukraine and whether that's going to continue and what happens this winter, agriculture is tied into that. And we'll have to see what that does to international grain markets going forward. It's had an impact already. And generally the impact on agriculture is it's keeping prices up 
uh, for our products. You know, that's kind of a perverse way to look at things. Um, uh, but the war in Ukraine, what happens with that? Economic issues. I think there are a lot of people out there, some of which are farm people, that are going to have to start paying credit card bills in 2023. Uh, they've kind of been living off of that. That's going to be an issue. What happens with land values as interest rates go up? Um, land values have been holding strong. Will they start to come down? And then, of course, the cost of inputs. Uh, cost of inputs are outrageous. And last year, a lot of farmers didn't get caught in the dramatic rise in inputs because they prepaid. Uh, they had locked in before the price had gone up. And we're, that's going to be different for this year. So a lot of the short-term loans, the interest rates are up on those. Uh, input costs are going to be up. Watch what happens with land values. But uh, the, you know, you got a bunch of economic issues to deal with in agriculture, too. This is a longer list than I was expecting it to be, Roger. Uh, <laughs> wow. I think let's, okay, let's go back to a couple of the Supreme Court cases because I think those are some major nationwide things. And as a, a podcast that has a nationwide and global audience, I think that's what we should probably focus on a little bit. So let's start, you started with water. So let's start with water. What does that case look like or what are the potential ramifications of that case for farmers across the U.S.? Yeah, well, the definition of a wetland has been a big issue for um, almost 50 years. And this is this involves a Clean Water Act definition of what a wetland is. And it's something that Congress never really specifically defined. And so we've had uh, regulatory agencies trying to define what a wetland is and what a water of the United States is for years and years. The last time the U.S. Supreme Court dealt with this was about 15 years ago. And they came up with an opinion that had with a, a court case that had ended up with multiple opinions. And they, they were fractured nine ways to Sunday, uh, so to speak, on that one. And it's been very difficult for the lower courts since that time to figure out what test they apply. Uh, do we use what Justice Scalia said? Do we use what Justice Kennedy said? They've been all over the board. And this is what happened in this Idaho case. They're not farmers. Uh, the Sacketts bought a tract of land in northern Idaho, way up in that skinny part of, of Idaho between Washington and Montana, um, 100 to 200 yards from a lake. And the lake is a water of the United States, but they don't have any water on their property. Uh, but the government is alleging that it is connected uh, through various connections where they connect the dots and get their track tied to the lake and they're using their regulatory definition the government is using it, its regulatory definition the corps of engineers and the epa and the sackets are challenging that and this is actually the second trip to the u.s supreme court for the sackets if you can imagine going through the entire system once and the, on one issue winning on that and then it's remanded back to the lower court you lose again and now you work your way all the way through the system again just think of the fees involved in all of that but the uh, while the administrative agencies the epa in particular is trying to write its own redefinition of what a water water of the united states is because if you remember the obama administration had its definition the trump administration came in and changed that to a rule much that many farmers viewed as much more favorable. And now the current administration has changed that and is writing their own rule. And at the same time, we've got this legal tract out there where the Supreme Court is going to come up with its own definition. So uh, ultimately, this, what the Supreme Court says will be 
um, what we go with, but we'll see who gets there first. So it's a big issue and the way that impacts agriculture is how a wetland is defined will then define what type of farming activities we can do on property uh, without getting the federal government involved in our lives. And so it's very important uh, what, this, what the court's going to say. When are we anticipating a decision on that case? I don't think it'll take until June. Um, probably February or March would be my, my guess is when that one will come. It was argued in October. It was the one of the first cases right out of the box to be argued this new term. So I think reasonably February at the earliest. Okay. We won't hold you to it, but that sounds great. The other one you mentioned, Roger, was the states being able to tell other states what to do in terms of agricultural practices. And and that's all linked to Proposition 12 out of California. And um, I'll, I'll be honest, I followed that case a little bit closer. I actually listened to oral arguments on it, and I thought it was fascinating. But for those listeners who did not do that, can you give a little bit background on what Proposition 12 is and, again, what those impacts look like for agriculture coming down the road, depending on what that decision looks like? Yeah. uh, Well, Proposition 12, with that, California voters basically said, we don't like the way that hogs and other agricultural products are raised in, for example, the state of Iowa, um, your leading pork producer state. And we think that uh, the sows need to be, when they're birthing, they need to be in cages where they can stand up and turn around uh, without touching any of the sides. I call it the hokey pokey law to help people remember, you know, you want to get up and turn around and and do all that stuff, do the hokey pokey. Um, But, you know, we don't we don't raise hogs that way. In fact, we don't want the sow to get up and move around because they'll crush the piglets if they do that. Well, California doesn't raise any pigs, so they don't understand this. And so they couch this in terms of humane treatment to animals. And we don't want to eat pork raised by people who treat the hogs inhumanely. That's kind of the idea and the focus of California. So keep in mind, you have a state It comes up with these rules and says, well, if you don't raise your hogs, your pigs, if you don't raise that pork in accordance with our standards, then you can't sell into California. Well, California is your number one market. They consume 13 percent of pork products, just one state. They don't produce anything. They don't produce any hogs, but they eat 13 percent of pork produced in this country. So if I'm a hog farmer in Iowa, I want to sell into that market. I want to have access to that market. Uh, Otherwise, if I can't get to that market, then my product, I've got less, many less buyers. My value goes down. So it's it's instrumental to a a hog producer elsewhere. So the question is, under what's known as the Dormant Commerce Clause, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds of legal terminology here, can one state regulate the ag practices in another state? And what you heard on oral argument Uh, In fact, I had been on RFD TV the day before oral argument, and I gave this example. And I said, well, what's to prevent one state from retaliating against another state? What's to prevent Iowa from retaliating against California and passing a law saying, well, you know, uh, we like trees in the state of Iowa. And uh, even though we don't produce any almonds, we we like trees and we want the almonds that we eat in the state of Iowa to be produced from trees where the almonds are handpicked and the trees are not shaken by uh, this machine that ravages their trunks uh, because we like trees. 
Well, if you were listening to the oral argument, I'm sitting there listening to this, and Justice Alito gave my almond tree example. Uh, he came up with the same example, and he's a counselor. What's to prevent Iowa from enacting a law uh, dealing with almonds in this way? And that, I think that's a good point, and it really troubled a lot of the justices. Justice Jackson, uh, Justice Sotomayor raised the same issue, Justice Alito. How do we stop if we don't do something on this? Tell us whether there is a less burdensome way for California to protect its morals uh, is the word that they used. And, and one of the justices said, well, what if Iowa's morals are different than California's morals? And so that's the conundrum that the court is dealing with here. But in my view, you can't, you simply cannot allow one state to set rules for another state. Nobody in Iowa voted for the people in California that are now setting the rules governing their conduct in Iowa, for example. I'm picking on Iowa because they're a major pork producer, but it could be any state. And that's a really good question. Where, where does this stop? So I think the court will do something. They even got into the labeling discussion, if you heard that. You know, what, what if we just say, you know, what if California says, well, you got to put a label on these pork products that come from Iowa. Maybe it says, this pork was raised in an inhumane manner. Okay, uh, inhumane according to California. Uh, so it's, boy, that's an important case. So we've got two really high profile cases that are going to come out in 23 involving agriculture. Do you know when we're expecting a decision on that case? Again, I think it's kind of on the same track um, as the wetlands case. It was argued right after uh, or short the, the next week after the, uh, um, the wetlands case was. So it was very early in the term. I don't think it's going to take until June. I would be shocked if we went all the way to June uh, without having an opinion in this one. I think we'll see it again. Could be February, March. So these are some major, major cases that, you know, not directly tied to dairy. And, and that's obviously what we talk about on this podcast, but still have the potential to impact dairy. So how do people, listeners, dairy farmers, any kind of farmer, how do they get involved? How do you get your voice heard in a conversation that can have impacts to protect loss to farm or even just um, fight things that have happened? Well, I, I think this is where uh, the organizations that represent dairy farmers, for example, would uh, come into play. You may not be able to do anything individually, but collectively you can have your voice heard through your farm organizations that a farmer is a member of. And, and so that's one w good way to do it. Oh, and I always tell farmers, keep in touch with your elected representatives. Uh, make sure they understand what the issues are. Sometimes we see those that are elected and they just have simply have no clue. Uh, about agriculture. In fact, Katie, I just read a U.S. tax court opinion yesterday, and uh, it was an, an Iowa farmer that was under examination, and the IRS went after the farmer, um, and it, it really showed me, and I'm just shaking my head as I read the opinion, oh, this, this poor revenue agent has no concept of what a farmer does, and he ends up in tax court with these bogus arguments being po posed against him, but he's got to go to tax court to defeat these, which he does, uh, and the agent is looking at his farming operation. This is an individual that started farming back in the 70s, um, shortly after he got out of college, and weathered the 80s, 
has become very frugal, now owns uh, about a section of ground, fully debt free, but he's never bought expensive farm equipment. And um, he always uses used equipment and he, re- because he said, I want to be able to repair it. I don't want to have this high tech stuff that I can't repair. And I may not even own the technology to, which is another issue that's out there. And so he's got, he's got 30 tractors. He has five tracts of land, non-contiguous. And the IRS said, well, since you're driving your tractor on the road to get to another track, then that becomes a, that's a passenger vehicle, which is now under the code subject to what we call strict substantiation requirements. And so she wiped out a bunch of his deductions. And, and the tax court judge, which was Judge Paris, a good friend of mine, who is the only judge on the U.S. tax court with a farm background. Thankfully, she got this case. She very politely and dutifully goes through 40 pages of explaining, you know, it's you, you you're you're still a farmer, even though you go down the road a little bit to get to another tract of farmland. Uh, and so I said, no, it's not a passenger vehicle. Uh, we can take depreciation as a farm implement for that. Well, then the IRS said, well, because he's got all of these tractors, obviously he's not in the farming business. He's an antique collector. And and Judge Paris goes through this again and says, no, uh, he's got five different tracks. He has a hay operation. He has a row crop operation. Some tractors are used for hay ground. Uh, Some tractors are used for a row crop. She explains the front end differences on a tractor. You know, the tires are a different width because they can go down through a crop row. Uh, Some of them are used to haul manure spreaders, so forth and so on. And said, no, he's not an antique collector. uh, And he's got these five tracks. He needs some tractors on each of these tracks to minimize the time on the road, which you didn't like in the first place. So it's just... To me, it's almost comical to read it on one hand, but on the other hand, it's sad because you had an IRS agent that raised those types of arguments. Wow. No kidding. So where can people go to find information or or where do you go to find information, Roger, that can keep people up to date on what's happening on the, the tax law, ag law front? Yeah, I write on all these things and, and it's all available on my website. Uh, and that's washburnlaw.edu and then backslash W-A-L-T-R, uh, which stands for Washburn Agricultural Law and Tax Report. Or they can just do a general Internet search for uh, Washburn Walter, W-A-L-T-R, and you'll find all of this stuff. Uh, you can find my website and then tool around on there and then even has my speaking schedule on that uh, as to where I'm, I'm going to be. And one last question for you, Roger, before uh, I let you get on with your day and, and listeners can get on with theirs, too. Do you have any advice for farmers who are looking to find the right lawyer to help them do any assortment of things? Is there is there a trait that makes somebody the right lawyer for a farm versus something else? That's a really good question. I get that a lot. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a database, so to speak, that somebody could go to and kind of get a list. Uh, I do a lot of referrals uh, because I know a lot of people from all over the country and uh, people can feel free to ask me and based on where they're at, I can get them pointed. And if that person doesn't know, then they can get them to somebody that we would trust uh, to help them. That Because this is an issue, um, this whole area of agricultural law is so highly technical and specific to farmers and ranchers. We have a lot of um, the law in general, as it involves farmers, is law by the exception, as I like to say. We have a set of rules for non-farmers, and then Congress has decided, well, farmers need unique treatment, and so the laws are different. So you can't just go to any attorney unless they're specifically trained in 
agricultural tax, agricultural estate planning, the unique issues involving fence law and farm leases and all of that. The rules are different. And so I do a lot of referrals with respect to that. Uh, another good way is actually word of mouth. Now, if you've got a, uh, a friend, a neighbor, somebody down at the coffee shop that's had some legal work done for them and it was a good job and they're pleased with it, uh, that might be a, a good reference uh, tool also there is by word of mouth. Perfect. Just like a lot of things get done in farming, word of mouth. I like it. So Roger, um, again, thank you so much for taking the time to, to do this episode with us and sharing some insight and listeners, make sure you go check out that website for more information and keep up to date on what's happening because we just skimmed the surface on this stuff because 30 minutes is not enough to, to really dive into everything that's happening as it relates to, to your businesses. So again, thank you so much, Roger. I appreciate it. Thank you, Katie. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Dairy Show. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to hit like and subscribe wherever you are listening to us today. And of course, don't forget to tell your friends about how much you are enjoying The Dairy Show. We would love to have them join us as well. And last but not least, if you have any comments for us, send us an email at wde at wdexpo.com. We would love to hear from you.